From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Syria. Good morning, Syria. She's been called the Oprah of Syria, but radio host Honey Al Said had to flee. Now she's in Colorado lecturing at DU. Her reflections on the Syrian civil war and a free press. Then the ethics of online ads. Sometimes the same companies that are claiming to put forth these messages of social unity are actually funding the sites that are tearing us apart socially. Later, director Ryan Johnson took a break from Star Wars to make a whodunit called Knives Out. Growing up in Denver, Johnson made movies with a clunky video camera. As a little kid, it was half my size. I was waddling around with this thing. But yeah, I started making movies as soon as my dad brought that home, and I just kept going all through junior high and high school. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. She's been called the Oprah of Syria. Hani Al Said once hosted the most popular radio show in Damascus. Good morning, Syria. Good morning, Syria had more than six million listeners, but the show came to an end when Al Said was forced into exile in 2012. She now lives in Washington, D.C., and with Syria in tatters, she has remained deeply connected to the country. Al Said is lecturing this semester at the University of Denver's Corbell School of International Studies. And welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. I understand that your show, Good Morning Syria, took inspiration from a fictional radio show with a similar name. Good Morning Vietnam! And that's Good Morning Vietnam with Robin Williams, the 1987 film. What inspired you about it? Well, um, I I loved what uh, Robin Williams was doing during. If, if, if you have not seen the movie, you should. Um, what happened is that uh, he, it was a, a time of fighting, and he was with the military, and he was trying to uh, bring up the mood of everybody there, and at the same time, uh, bringing awareness to the situation and what was going on in Vietnam. It was very controversial at the time, um, and. Uh, yeah, just I, I love the way he brought a smile to uh, folks up there that were fighting. In a very dark time. In a very dark time. And you wanted to play a similar role. I wanted to play a, sim- a similar role and take the opportunity to see if I can uh, try and work inside the system and create change bottom top. Uh, and um, and I just wanted to, at first it was very organic, I just wanted people to be happy uh, until... Uh, a couple of years in, I'm like, wait a minute, I've got a lot of power with this microphone. It's got to be beyond making people happy. What did you want to use that power for? Uh, social cultural change. Uh, I saw that once you have a microphone or a, a media platform, really, and a, a followership that's uh, increasing, uh, then you have a lot of power and it's a big responsibility. And at times it feels like a burden too because people start to idolize you uh, even if they don't know you. So um, they'll believe anything you tell them. Well, that's a power <laughs> yes. that must be used wisely. You know, early on your show in Syria took advantage of a loosening restriction on media. This mm-hmm. is about a decade ago. Uh, a 2010 NPR story about journalistic freedom held up your show as an example. Uh, What was behind that initial easing of restrictions on the press? 
Uh, this was in 2005 when uh, privatization of media began in uh, Syria, and it was on part the regime trying to evolve and show that they're reforming. Uh, and there was and a lot of hope at that time. There was a lot of hope at that time that maybe it's an evolution versus a revolution. <laughs> Uh, but it was pretty slow, too. And even though it was private media, it was still um, monitored by the Ministry of Information. In fact, private radios alone had an office that was monitoring them, let alone magazines and newspapers and other media, private media outlets that had emerged at the time. Eventually, though, you essentially caught the attention and the ire of government officials. How did that start? Well, uh, I, I, when I first started, I caught the eye of not just the government, but also the the, uh, the traditional media that was out there, the public media that was there. And it does was, that mean like the state-run media? The state-run media. It was a very um, top-down, lecture-like, uh, serious, uh, classical Arabic. And here comes. Uh, me with a very Western influence, uh, seeing that I grew up in, you know, in the Middle East, but in American institutions. So I, I carry both fascinating cultures and I'm bilingual. What they say, I speak Arablish, which is like Spanglish. And that's what I did on the show. And I played Arabic and Western music. I didn't speak classical Arabic. I spoke in my native tongue. And uh, uh, I was very upbeat, like Robin Williams would have been, and, and I cracked jokes, and it was very personable, and I made sure to talk with the people, not to the people, unlike a state-run media would. And so I broke a lot of rules to begin with, and um, at at the beginning, when I first started, I got in trouble with the media, uh, trying to say, who does she think she is, and she's speaking two languages, et cetera, breaking hmm. all social taboos, talking about topics that are uh, in a conservative country. Um, but... Um, I, I got called in by the manager and he said, you know, you're getting us in trouble. And I said, yeah, but I mean, we need change. Isn't that why you're a private media outlet and you're the first one to open? So why don't you just give me a chance until the end of the year? You either fire me or we speak salary. And uh, we spoke salary. <laughs> and you spoke salary. What were some of the taboo topics that you were broaching on the show? So, um, you know, it was... Every year, for example, I made sure to talk about sex education. Um, I did talk about women's rights. Uh, I was very focused. This is a population where, you know, especially at the time, it was mostly youth uh, and, and youth empowerment and so on. But um, and at times when I can, because you have to know how to tread a red line uh, with under an oppressive regime. So um that is monitoring you at all times. So it's like pushing the envelope. It's an ebb and flow. And you talk a little bit about corruption. And then if you get in too much trouble, you, you back off a you little. Back off it's a, a little. dance. It's a choreography. It's a dance. And uh, you learn how to do it well. You, you know how to master it after a few years. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And we're speaking with Hani El Said, who had a very popular radio show in Syria based in Damascus. Uh, she was forced out of the country, though, and she is guest lecturing at the University of Denver, the Corbell School there. Um, what was the turning point? Why did you leave? So I think your last broadcast was December 31st, 2011, right? Yes, that was the last day that uh, I was on air. This was a three-hour live show, morning show. And um, I, 
unfortunately, I couldn't say goodbye, uh, that this is my last day on the show. You couldn't signal to the audience that you were going to be because leaving. Because I didn't want to flag that I was leaving. Uh, I was, it, my leaving was a secret. It was more like I, because I used to travel a lot to come to the United States for conferences um, to talk about the role of positive media, how do you creatively and strategically use it under oppressive regimes. Um, you have an organization dedicated to the idea exactly. that media and art can help create peace. Uh, yes, and it's called MAP for short. So, um, And we're running part of this program today at the University of Denver. Um, and uh, media and arts, do you want me to tell you a little bit about it? Well, or I'd you... love to know a little bit more about the circumstances under which you felt you had to leave Syria. Oh, sure. So um, whatever little liberties we had uh, before the revolution that was hijacked by an armed conflict and a proxy war and radicals dominating the narrative in Syria, and as you can see, an all-out genocide today, um, when the revolution started, all of that was... Um, hijacked as well, whatever little freedom I had, that ebb and flow, the mastering of the red line, that was all gone. And now there was, it was no more room for that dance. No more. Yeah, no more room for that dance. And also now it was um, really straightforward state run. Uh, and uh, so it wasn't you would get in trouble not about what you say now, it's about what you refuse to say. And uh, you're in journalism, you're in the media, and you know ethically that uh, you wouldn't want to be a mouthpiece to anyone or anything private or public. Um, and this was the situation. Had you been asked to broadcast a message you didn't feel comfortable broadcasting? Did you outright say, no, I'm not going to say this? It was, uh, no, you never say outright anything. Uh -huh. It's always going to be a dance. Uh, but it was, um, there's just so many anecdotal stories that I can share at this point. But um, for example, it was, it's an interactive show. You get messages, you get call-ins. And if the messenger call-in was um, uh, pro the the regime or the government, and I didn't say anything, I just kept quiet. I did not, let's say you love the president and you're a caller, and I just say nothing about that. Why did I not say anything about that? Why, why didn't, didn't I you add your own praise? Or... Yeah, why didn't I add oh. my own praise? Why am I not praising? Uh, why is it when I do read things that I, I'm asked to read, that I do it in a tone that is not, I'm excited about Yeah, ebullient <laughs> about whatever message you're being exactly, delivered. Exactly, exactly. You, you do, I, I understand, an online broadcast for listeners in Syria and the Syrian diaspora. What details stand out to you about surviving day-to-day -day in Syria? And I'll note, you haven't been there really since 2012. Yes. But what, what do you hear about life there, just in, in about the last minute? Um, it depends where in Syria. Hmm. And so if you're talking about the capital of Syria, then um, it's if, if you are familiar with the civil war in Lebanon in their 15 years, they still went to schools and... You know, they still went to work or they still partied or they still and that's kind of life in, in Damascus. But it's survival mode. It's not uh, it's a it's a new Syria, not just for those who are in the diaspora. It's become a new Syria for those who are still inside Syria. And it's a different picture outside of Damascus. It's a different picture outside of Damascus. A more difficult one. Uh, a more difficult one. Absolutely. 
I appreciate your time. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Honey Al-Sayed fled the Syrian civil war in 2012. For six years, she hosted a popular radio show based in Damascus. She's guest lecturing this semester at DU's Corbell School for International Studies. Heading into the 2020 election, Twitter has announced it's banning all political ads, the latest development in a larger debate about the power and accuracy of online ads, and whether tech companies should be more highly regulated. We have a massive crisis in our democracy with the way these tech companies are being used, not just in terms of anti-competitive practices, but also to undermine our democracy. The best way we can fight back against big tech companies is to say our data is our property. Right now, our data is worth more than oil. How many of you remember getting your data check in the mail? It got lost. It went to Facebook, Amazon, Google. So Cory Booker there and Andrew Yang in the most recent Democratic presidential debate. And it got us thinking about the ethics of online ads. Caroline McCarthy is a former journalist who now works for an advertising company, TrueX, that says it's committed to ethical advertising. She just did a TED Talk in Boulder. And my colleague Avery Lill asked her what ethical advertising is and why it matters. The problem is that in digital, so many players in the advertising industry just turn a blind eye to where their ads might be running where the money from their ads might be going. And they have just been focused on, is this getting clicks? Is this getting conversions? Is this improving my bottom line? And it became really, really pronounced for me when there was a year, maybe maybe it was two years ago, where there were a bunch of Super Bowl ads that were all about like healing partisan divides and, you know, bringing those themes to light. I think there was a Walmart ad where they have people from different walks of life bringing chairs to a giant table and sitting down for a meal together. And there's and there's all, there's definitely a big vibe in brand advertising these days of, you know, understanding others and and healing uh, social divides and things like that. The problem is that okay, maybe that's your ad creative, and I can't speak to Walmart because I I don't work for Walmart and I don't know what their media strategy is. But just using that as an example of the, sort of these themes in advertising. Problem is that the same companies are running ads on partisan websites that are using outrage as a means to get more clicks and raise the amount of money that they're making from advertising. And so it's sometimes the same the same companies that are claiming to put forth these messages of social unity are actually funding the sites that are tearing us apart socially. And I think that that's something that a lot of companies maybe just aren't thinking about or maybe they're not being mindful about. I don't think that they're meaning to fund this stuff. I think that it's often a a serious disconnect where you've got these, you know, these young media planners and buyers who are just in front of a spreadsheet and they're very, they're very distanced from the, what their, what their ads actually do. And so I think that when it comes to advertising ethically, you have to be aware of where your ads are running, but also the fact that you're inserting kind of a form of disruption into consumers' day and trying to grab their attention are you abusing that privilege? Are you stuffing so many ads onto websites that you're distracting them and raising you know, the cortisol levels in their brains and literally stressing them out? I think that there's a lot to think about that the industry just hasn't been. So there's a lot to get into here. And I want to talk specifically about this idea that outrage could generate clicks. You strongly believe that some advertising is designed to make people hate each other. Here's a clip from a TED Talk you did in May of last year. 
Advertising is tearing our social fabric apart, and if we don't do something about it, things are going to get worse. At the root of this is the fact that digital media has given us, the consumers, unlimited and nonstop access to all the content we could possibly want, and more. The bulk of this content is supported by advertising, and it's highly competitive. So competitive that a lot of companies vying for those ad dollars are using a pretty shady playbook. Clickbait, sensationalism, fake news. Can you give me an example of clickbait that really exemplifies this concept of media that relies on outrage or that's meant to make us hate each other? Every year, millennial-focused news outlets will publish stories that are something like, here's how to deal with your conservative parents at Thanksgiving dinner. And those stories are always, I think they're definitely clickbait because, first of all, there's obviously no one solution to dealing with any family. Every family is different. And I just find it so ironic because those same very kind of left-leaning media outlets that are trying to target young people and also kind of maximize the ad impressions that they get from this young kind of coastal liberal millennial audience, they spend the rest of the year running extremely partisan stuff that is basically designed to create those divisions between these supposedly left-leaning young people and their supposedly right-leaning families. And so I find that there's a real irony there that then, you know, on Thanksgiving, they're like, hey, effectively, we've been telling you all year that your parents are ignorant and that you should hate them. And by the way, here's how to tolerate them at Thanksgiving. I think that it's it's pretty amusing slash sad. And of course, Social media sites are one of the places that these outlets are running their headlines, hoping to get clicks. To fix this issue, some politicians have called for breaking up companies like Facebook. Do you see that as a solution? I think it is a valid inquiry. My issue is that we have never, ever, as a voting bloc, as American citizens, we have never prioritized tech literacy in our politicians, not on a national level and not on state and local levels either. So as a result, I have a lot of skepticism that the politicians we elect will handle this in an effective way that isn't ultimately curtailing innovation or screwing over consumers. Our our politicians just are not very tech literate. And that's because we don't, as voters, we just we don't prioritize getting tech literate politicians into office. And I I think that's changing because people are starting to realize just how important these issues are to them. But we currently have elected officials who sometimes don't even really care to understand tech. And um, they're often legislating for things that are cleaning up the messes of the recent past rather than thinking forward, you know, 5, 10, 20 years, how is this going to affect technologies that don't even exist yet? And I wonder, do you see a shift in younger voters prioritizing that in their voting, the tech savviness and tech policy? I wish I did. <laughs> um, I don't I don't see anything concrete. And that's in in part because, well, first of all, young does not necessarily mean tech savvy. Some of the uh, members of Congress who are coming up with the most sort of, frankly, harebrained and silly stuff with how to deal with with tech are actually younger elected officials. I don't I don't think it's a matter of generations and, and age and whatnot, except to the extent that people in the tech industry are just anecdotally prioritizing the fact that this affects their livelihoods. And as tech has become a bigger industry, they come into contact with other people in their families and their social circles, and they'll say, hey, you know, I'm supporting this politician who is very tech literate and very forward thinking on tech. Maybe, you know, this is something you should too. So I think it's a question really just exposure. So on some level, time spent discussing tech policy might actually help voters differentiate between candidates. 
I hope it does. And why I started to get interested in in this in the first place was just the looks that I got. And I I live in Brooklyn, very left-leaning part of the country. And the looks that I got from some of my friends when I told them that there were Democratic politicians I would not vote for because of how bad their tech literacy is and how damaging that could be. The looks were just like, well, you know, but that's not really an important set of issues. You know, the, the the things that we should be concerned about are X, Y, and Z. It's gotten treated as sort of this like nerd pet issue or or set of issues because it's, it's very far reaching. But it also just kind of breaks out of what people have come to think of as this partisan divide, that there are some issues that are left and some issues that are right. And, and tech policy just doesn't fall along those lines. And so I, I hope that people are using it to differentiate between candidates within their party of choice, because I don't think that it yet has the gravitas to to get them to jump parties. But I think that within primaries, it can be a very important differentiator. And I think that what you're seeing with people in the tech industry really prioritizing these candidates who play up their tech literacy, I think you're starting to see that take root. And we should be very clear, you don't see tech policy as a partisan issue specifically. Within both parties, you're going to find politicians who really, really, really don't know what they're talking about and others increasingly that do. And I think that that is something that you also have to take into into consideration because, you know, neither party has a clear platform on addressing it. Can you give me some examples of what you think are some of the most important tech policies that are coming down the pike right now? Oh, where to start? Um, So one that is very heated right now is Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Platforms and publishing services are are kind of given a form of immunity to the content that is on their platforms. There are some exceptions like, you know, things that are illegal or things that are considered blatantly hate speech. But it is meant that platforms like Facebook and Twitter have been able to kind of say, you know, not my problem if people are harassing each other online and they cannot be held to blame for it. And that has been popping up for a while. And it gets mentioned a lot when it comes to whether social networks should police what is on their platforms. It's come under fire from politicians from both parties. Some Democrats are claiming that the provisions of Section 230 allow social networks to get away with hate speech on their platforms. There are some Republicans who are claiming that it is permitting them to crack down and censor. So obviously some not just disagreement, but um, complete sort of canceling each other out there. <laughs> That's a really crucial one. The rise of automation is getting talked about a lot. You know, innovations that are five, 10 years down the road. And so I think that it, it's not quite as I wouldn't say not important, but I'd say not as immediate But it's something that I'm really glad politicians are talking about. And then obviously hacking, cybersecurity, election security, and anyone can be vulnerable to whatever the the next hacking incursion is. But I I think that it is often deprioritized. I know that there are some candidates running for Congress who are running explicitly to prioritize cybersecurity. So that's a promising sign. And that is Caroline McCarthy, a former journalist who now works for an advertising company, Truex, that says it's committed to ethical advertising. She spoke with my colleague Avery Lill. We learned about McCarthy's work because of her recent TEDx talk in Boulder. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. He directed a Star Wars film, has committed to three more. But Ryan Johnson 
is currently celebrating the release of his star-studded whodunit, Knives Out. Are you baiting me, detective? Attempting to be thorough so we can figure out the manner of death. You mean if someone killed him? You think one of us, one of his family, Walt, Walt. killed him? Mr. Blanc, I just buried my father who committed suicide. Why are you here? I suspect... Knives Out opened the Denver Film Festival, which is on now. Ryan Johnson produced, directed, and wrote the movie. He spent a good chunk of his childhood in Denver, and he sat down with me while he was back in town for the festival. And Ryan, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. In this film, Knives Out, a celebrated crime novelist is found dead following his 85th birthday. It's initially thought to be a suicide, but something's fishy, and everyone, especially members of the author's dysfunctional family, becomes a suspect. (laughs) You seem to have a penchant for mysteries. I mean, with early films like Brick and your sci-fi mystery Looper, I understand you were a big murder mystery fan as a kid, particularly Agatha Christie. Yeah, I mean, that's where this one comes from. This is straight Christie. I mean, it's an original story. It's modern day. It has kind of a modern twist on it, but... The heart of it is I love a good whodunit, a good traditional whodunit. And the whole idea was, you know what? Let's get an all-star cast together. Let's make it PG-13 so the whole family can come. And let's make the kind of whodunit that, that when I was a kid, I grew up watching. What does it mean that it's pure Agatha Christie? Like, what was that take that you well, wanted? Well, the whodunit has a really specific structure. You know, you have kind of a powerful person that gets murdered, and then usually there's a contained area, whether it's a mansion or they're all on an island somewhere or something. Right, no one can escape. Really. No one can get away, and then there's kind of like a group of colorful suspects who are all connected in some way. And then you have an eccentric detective who goes about solving the case. And that's what we got here. And the yeah, other... Daniel Craig plays the eccentric detective. He, he does. And he, if you only know Daniel Craig from playing James Bond, <laughs> this is something completely different. He's having a lot of fun in this role. It's, it's, a, it's a real blast to watch. Who is that guy? Uh, Mr. Blanc is a private investigator of great renown. I read a tweet about a New Yorker article about you. You're famous. So he plays Detective Benoit Blanc. Benoit Blanc. I love that line. I read a tweet about a New York article. <laughs> That's Tony Collette delivering yeah. that line. She plays kind of like a, an Instagram influencer in the movie. She's quite funny. <laughs> Daniel Craig is an unusual choice. It's funny, again, because most people know him from playing the very stern, serious character of James Bond. I had met him a few times over the years. He is the opposite of that in real life. He is a fun dude. And he's also an incredible actor with tremendous range. And so I think he really relished the idea of doing something completely different here. He's having so much fun. And I think you can, that's one of the fun things about the movie. You can really tell how much fun everybody, Daniel especially, is having on screen. Just back to Agatha Christie for a moment. She wrote Ten Little Indians, which I think was also titled... um... And then there were none. And then there were none. Yeah. Right, which is sort of set in the classic mansion. I think that might be her best book. It's kind of non-traditional as a, it doesn't quite have the structure of a real traditional locked door mystery. It's a little more like a horror movie in a way, but it is a fantastic book. But yeah, she was great at characters. That's that Christie was such a good writer of characters. She drew all these kind of caricatures of British life at the time. And, And the idea with this was to kind of do that with America in 2019. Yeah, how did you go about that? I mean, it's a lot of work, first of all, to give everyone 
motivation, everyone a backstory, everyone good lines. Well, it's part of the fun of it, too, though, for me. I mean, and it's uh, especially when you get a group of actors together like this, you want to give them each something fun to do. So the whole idea was, okay, if we're going to set this in 2019, we're not going to just do like the modern version of Colonel Mustard and Professor Plum. (laughs) We're going to have each of these character types really be people that could only exist today. I mean, so you have a, a, a kid who's kind of an internet troll and you have, you know, a daughter who's very, very aggressively socially progressive. And like, there's all these different character types from today. I tried to create a broad spectrum of of, you know, 2019 types. You talked about a critical aspect of whodunit being that isolation. Everyone's, you know, in a house, on an island. And yet, uh, in modern life, we're very rarely isolated because of our phones, because of Wi-Fi. Mm. How does that change the dynamic? You know what's odd? In, in the case of a whodunit, it didn't. There was never a point in the script where I was even tempted to solve a plot point by having someone not be able to get cell service. <laughs> it, didn't, oh. it didn't need to happen. Oh. So uh, I think because it's all really about the family being drawn together by this event, which mm-hmm. is the death of their grandfather, or their father, basically, the, the patriarch. And so more often than not, everyone's in the same room together. And that's kind of fun and refreshing, just a dysfunctional family going at each other in, in a way that hopefully is entertaining. We'll try not to give too much away, but I, I, I want to talk about the big plot twist. (laughs) You're thinking, how are we going to do this? It it hits it 30 minutes in. Yeah, we throw kind of a curveball at the audience. I'm not going to say what it is, but that's what part of what Agatha Christie did back in the day. You know, in a way, you might watch this movie and say, oh, this is very non-traditional in the way it kind of flips things on its head in terms of the plot. But Agatha Christie, if you read her books, every single book, she was figuring out ways to flip the formula on its head and try and try and wake the audience's senses up and try and give them an actual challenge so that they're kind of you're leaning forward thinking what what's going to happen next instead of just saying, oh, I know what's going to happen. I know this formula. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So do you start with the mystery solved and work your way back as you're writing this? Yeah, I, I, I write very structurally. So I need to be able to see the shape of the whole thing in my head before I start writing. So I begin just not even with the plot, but just with the general story shape. I say, okay, it starts kind of as a whodunit and then this happens. So but this when you started that this is a whodunit, did yeah. you already know who did it? Well, I, I knew... Well, no, I knew kind of like how they did it. And so, and then I was like, okay, so if this is the relationship of the characters, it means this type of person will be the killer and this type of person will be the victim. And this, and I start filling in the blanks, but I start even more broadly than I really start with the foundation of the house. And then I start figuring out where to put the rooms. The house. That must've been fun to search for what what house would play the house? Was yeah. that, is that like casting? It is very much like casting, especially with this movie. I mean, the whole thing is set basically in this one mansion, the family home, and we needed to find the murder mystery mansion of the mind. And we found this amazing house in Massachusetts and went to Massachusetts to film there. And we just basically shot most of the movie in this one incredible house. You mentioned murder mystery. Did you ever do those as a kid? Did you ever do oh, like yeah. a murder mystery theater? Yeah. Well, I tried, um, this is when I was, God, in junior high, I guess. I tried to make a murder mystery party for my friends 
and it was kind of a disaster because I tried to do it single-handedly. So I was like, I wanted to do the thing where at a certain dramatic point, all the lights turned off in the house. Uh-huh. But because it was just me, I had to like say, okay, excuse me. And I had to run down the basement and try and do all the breakers. <laughs> and then I couldn't get them back on. It kind of didn't work. So, so I'm making amends, I think, with this movie. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is director, producer, writer Ryan Johnson. His latest is called Knives Out, which opened the Denver Film Festival. Johnson, uh, who you may know from Star Wars The Last Jedi, spent a good chunk of his childhood in Denver. You also received the festival's highest honor, the John Cassavetes Award. Previous winners include Steven Soderbergh, Bill Pullman, William H. Macy, Elliot Gould, How does it feel to have your work screen here and win this accolade in the city you used to call home? Well, I mean, just to be screening here, just to be showing the movie here for me is incredibly special. I mean, I I was a kid here. I was here up through sixth grade. I went to Dry Creek Elementary and lived in Inglewood. But I still have have a huge family that I'm really close to, and a lot of them still live in Denver. And so I'm out here quite often seeing them. And they all came to the screening, and it was just my grandparents were there. Um, it was so much fun, <laughs> and, and so and and to receive that award, I mean that's I mean I, I definitely I, I don't feel like I've earned it, but it was an incredibly generous gesture by the film festival. You don't feel like you earned it. Tell me well, more. Well, you talk. About you that. list those names who have gotten it previously. <laughs> I feel like give me another ten years, I might get I might get to the level of any of those people. But those are some of my heroes, you know. So, how, how old are you, Ryan? I'm 45. Okay. Yeah. Wow, you look really young. God do, bless you. Do people say that? <laughs> I was gonna, I you were gonna say you can say it as often as you like. <laughs> Where do you want your career to head? I mean, it's interesting because you, you've been the sort of blockbuster director. You've also gotten to try on a very different hat with Knives Out. Hmm. Who do you see yourself being in 10 years? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, re- I really just, I mean, for me... You know, I had a fantastic experience making a Star Wars movie. I mean, it was a huge production, but it still felt very personal and and very, uh, yeah, still it still felt like the same type of like intimate creative process as any of my other movies. And so that, that I find remarkable. Yeah, most people. I think it's hard to communicate um, just because from the outside it looks like such a machine. And I guess I can only speak to my experience of it, but. It's, at the at the heart of it, it's really not. I mean, there's a lot of machinery to move these very big pieces, but the heart of it is still just, you know, a small group that's collaborating and really trying to make it come from their heart and tell a story and make it work and make the best movie they can. And, and the truth is the real work of it that matters is still just the essential creative work that's the same in any movie. It's the frame. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Did you make movies or try to in some kind of low rent way when you were living in Colorado. Oh my god, yeah. So my dad he like he loved gadgets and so he got one of the very first video cameras. This was a VHS video camera. It wasn't a camcorder. You had to like plug the camera into a VCR and carry the VCR around with you, You're which carrying the deck around. The actual deck. You had to put like a car battery into it basically <laughs> and it was it was a little kid. It was half my size. I was waddling around with this thing. But yeah, I started making movies as soon as my dad brought that home and I just kept going all through junior high and high school. What were these early movies about? Well, they were mostly just parodies. They were mostly like, oh, let's make a James Bond movie. We'll call him James Blonde and have it, you know, and so, uh, but the very first thing I did when they, when I 
picked up the camera for the very first time, it had like a handle on top. And I remember holding it down at floor level and running with it in between the space between our coffee table and couch. And I played it back and I was like, yep, that looks exactly like the trench run in Star Wars. And it was like, oh, that's how they did it. Nice. <laughs> I also love that you had an early James Bond send-up character and yep. later you would work with the current Full James circle, Bond. Full circle, baby. Mm-hmm. Full circle. Could you edit back in those days? No. We could. Well, you had to edit in camera. So anyone who was doing it back then, you just, you know, you do your shot and you stop at exactly the right point and then three, two, one, go. And you start at the next point. And I think that taught me editing, you know, that because you couldn't just like get a bunch of stuff and figure it out later. You, you couldn't to... take an image from 20 minutes further into the tape and bring it back five minutes. You, you were sort of editing as you went. You had to know the shots you were getting. You had to know how they connected and you had to know how they told the story. And I think that was actually really, really useful in terms of at a very early age, teaching me basically how to edit. Did your parents encourage you to pursue this as a career or did they think, oh, this is a cute hobby or like this is his version of wanting to be a fireman no my dad was in the home building business he wasn't in the movie business at all and um same with my with my grandparents same with all of my family and they were all movie buffs though my grandfather would show me you know fellini movies my dad who passed away a few years ago he would show me raging bull and scorsese films so they took this seriously they took this really seriously and they were so supportive and um my my dad is uh the reason i love movies i think there was a part of him that always wished that he could be doing this you know too and uh to get to kind of share the experience of making the movies with him that, that was really, really special. So he got to see some of your success, no doubt. He did, up through Looper. He passed away just before I got offered the Star Wars job. Yeah. Is it hard to come back to Denver without him here? Yeah, it's always strange and hard, you know. But I have, I'm like I said, I'm really close to my family. My grandparents are here. I have aunts and uncles here. And we're all really close. And so coming back and getting to hang out with them and... Even getting to hang out with them and, and talk about my dad, you know, that there's something comforting about that, I guess, you know. You are set to do more films for the Star Wars franchise, I think a new trilogy. Uh, what can you tell us about it without breaking some sort of, you know, nothing billion dollar contract? <laughs> nothing. nothing. <laughs> It'll take place in space, Ryan. It's it's in space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you think that there could be a sequel to Knives Out? Well, I'll tell you, I had so much fun making this with Daniel, and Daniel had so much fun. If if this movie does all right, and we'll see, it comes out Thanksgiving. If it does all right, if we can get together every few years and make a new Benoit Blanc oh. mystery, I would be thrilled, man. That would be so much fun. This would be your Agatha Christie. There you go, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that would be a blast. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Thanks, Ryan. I appreciate it. Writer and director Ryan Johnson grew up in Denver. His new film, Knives Out, opened the Denver Film Festival, which runs through Sunday. Knives Out opens all over the country, as you heard, Thanksgiving. And we'll be right back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. But first, here's a little taste of the soundtrack. I'm gonna live till I die I'm gonna laugh instead of cry I'm gonna take the town and turn it upside down I'm gonna live, live, live until I die They're gonna say, what a guy 
You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill. Let's remember now a Colorado music icon. Singer and virtuoso mandolin player Jeff Austin died unexpectedly back in June. He was 45. Austin was best known as the frontman for Yonder Mountain String Band, one of the most acclaimed roots music groups in the country. One, two, three. Headed straight into the west Sun is rising behind We're headed straight into the darkness Tonight, friends and fans will come together for a massive tribute show to honor Austin at a sold-out First Bank Center in Broomfield. The all-star lineup includes some of the biggest names from the jam and bluegrass scenes, Sam Bush, Hot Rise, Leftover Salmon, The String Cheese Incident, Yonder Mountain String Band, and many others. It just speaks volumes not only to how people felt about Jeff and Yonder, but how we essentially all feel about each other. Chris Pandolfi plays banjo in the infamous String Dusters, who are taking a break from their current tour to fly back to Colorado to take part in the event. I doubt there will be many times in our careers as musicians that we see this kind of collection of great and influential artists who are also friends and part of our family. So, you know, it's going to be a really special night and there's, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing everyone. Fellow duster Andy Hall says that Jeff Austin and Yonder paved the way for groups like theirs, blending artistry and showmanship in a way that was unique for many traditional string bands. You know, even though they were a bluegrass band, they had kind of a rock show. You know, they were the first band that I ever saw that was bluegrass that had like a big light show. And Jeff was the main character at the center of that. And that's the word that comes to mind when I think of Jeff is just he was such a character behind the scenes and on stage. Just a bit of all day long One thing's for certain What the night brings Could have been an easy rocker Cheer the devil and praise the saints Little bit of an easy rocker Jeff Austin was born in Arlington Heights, Illinois, an only child raised by a single mom. From a young age, he was a natural performer. He later attended the University of Cincinnati Conservatory of Music to study musical theater. That's when he found a different calling, as he told CPR News back in 2015. Something at that age, the combination of being away from home for the first time, being 18, knowing that I loved this musical theater, but then I was, you know, sneaking into like, bars and stuff to watch bands play and going, man, this is cool. The interaction, the immediate exchange. If you're on stage and you say a line that the crowd loves, it's that immediate reaction. And something inside of me just started for the first time ever questioning, is musical theater really what I want to do? And then I went and saw Fish and stood there and just kind of went, oh man. And then the question got bigger. And it got bigger and it got bigger. And, and I went on tour with the Grateful Dead. As uh, I was selling um, vegan tempeh pitas in the parking lot, <laughs> trying to figure out where my shoes were. And the question was growing huge in my mind. And I wasn't sleeping. 
And I said, Mom, I'm going to go and see a bunch of Grateful Dead shows with a bunch of friends of mine. And if I get back and I still feel this way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop out. And she said, you need to do what I want you to be happy. And I can hear it in your voice. You know, you got it. You get this chance once, you know. And I went on tour and I came back two weeks later and I remember going to the dorm and I sat in my room and I just went, I'm going home. Because I got to stand in these arenas and watch this band who I was really influenced by and just stand there and watch people's reactions and these floods of emotion. Mm -hmm. It was very clear. That was that. You ready? How you feeling? You ready? All right. Austin moved to Nederland, Colorado, taught himself the mandolin, and co-founded Yonder Mountain String Band in 1998. He parted ways with the group after 18 years to pursue a solo career. Austin was known for his playful stage presence, and a staple of Yonder's live shows was his impromptu scat singing and use of nonsensical lyrics. High country, Stella, Stella, Stella Brand, Stella, 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 and you can break it up. I thought, man, well, that was fun. And the crowd reacted to it. And that was just that uncaged beast at that point. I, it became one of my favorite things to do. Austin will be remembered not only as an electric live entertainer, but as a true songwriter with a passion for telling stories. I've always been fascinated with storytelling. You know, I was raised on a lot of kind of sketch comedy and stuff like that. And the way that people could get in there and tell you a story that would either make you laugh or make you think or whatever. You know, I, I love comedians, people like Bill Hicks, and then you go to guys like George Carlin and this and that, and great storytellers. It's something that's always moved me. I have a strong belief that even if you've created a character and you write a song about them, you got to believe in them and you got to make them real in order to make people feel that. Truthfully, you can create the wildest character that you want, but if there's not a little bit of you in there, people are going to perceive it in a way that they might not really kind of invest in it and believe it's real. So many miles and so many roads So many people who don't even know my name So many times I've looked to western skies Nowhere I go is quite the same As that sweet home waiting for me At the end of the day when word got out about Austin's death, the Colorado music community responded with tributes and remembrances. We reached banjo player and Yonder co-founder Dave Johnston. I really hope that Jeff is remembered as a uh, 
a steward of good times and a, a champion of the breakdown between audience and performer. There's a house somewhere I know where the fires burn all night long. There's a song that I wrote in the really, really early days uh, called Half Moon Rising. It ended up, all those years later, kind of becoming a song that people really liked. That was where I had my first experience where I was singing the song. The crowd was pretty big. I think it was on the West Coast. I remember there's a chorus, and it goes, There's a half moon rising. And I came up to the chorus. I said, There's a... And 500 people just, bam, just right back at me sang the chorus. I thought I was going to cry. And then I, I thought, you know what I'm going to do? The last chorus, I'm not going to sing it. I'm going to have them sing it. Because that's what I watched all the big famous people do on television. You know, That's what Elton John does. And so I stopped and they all sang it. And I just stood there and went, wow, that's so cool. Rising in southeastern skies There's a cold wind blowing across the great divide And the stars, they guide my way across the night There's a half moon rising Pushing me on over another mountaintop Push me on, no one ever stop Push me on There's a half moon rising in southeastern skies tonight My colleague Avery Lill with a remembrance of the late musician Jeff Austin who died in June Tonight, he'll be celebrated with an all-star jam session featuring a who's who of Colorado's bluegrass scene. The event was originally scheduled for a smaller music venue but moved to the First Bank Center in Broomfield because of overwhelming demand. It's sold out. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Vanish at my first glimpse of home.